this is the Santa Cruz Baptist Church Podcast, uh, and we're here to uh, dive a little bit deeper into the sermon, which we encountered in the text, which uh, Drew preached on on Sunday. Uh, so my name is Tyler Hurst. I'm one of the pastors here at Santa Cruz Baptist. And I'm Drew Cunningham, and I am another one of the pastors here at Santa Cruz Baptist. And we're going to be looking at uh, the text Drew had on Sunday, which is Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Uh, Drew, would you just give us a summary of that and what you hope our people walked away with? Yeah, so in summary, uh, this text deals with a moment in Jesus's life where him and his disciples are having lunch together, and some of the big boys from Jerusalem come in, Pharisees and scribes, and they see that Jesus, um, Jesus' disciples specifically, haven't washed their hands. And what is meant by that is not mm-hmm. that they uh, didn't have good hygiene, yeah. but they didn't wash their hands ceremonially in the way that the Pharisees and the scribes did. Mm-hmm. And so um, for them, they think this is a, a gotcha moment where they've got Jesus not obeying their laws. Mm-hmm. And, and so they ask him, why don't your disciples do this? And he responds by quoting Isaiah 29, calling them hypocrites, and mm-hmm. then telling them um, how a person is truly defiled, mm-hmm. um, and then um, proceeds to um, give them examples of how they have missed the boat in keeping their own laws and not keeping the law of God in, in the Ten Commandments even. Right, so there's a couple of different ways we can misread this passage in the age of coronavirus, or just as, you know, a parent with small children uh, and the washing of hands. But fundamentally what Jesus is trying to get at is it's the things inside of you which make you defiled before God, not things outside of you. Right. So we mm-hmm. we weren't, you know, this Sunday we weren't looking for people who came in and mm-hmm. used our hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't hopping all over them and saying, ah, oh, look, you're a legalist. Right. Uh, the right. point of this text mm-hmm. is not uh, about cleanliness necessarily mm-hmm. or, or hygiene. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about something much deeper in the heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always think passages like this, when we have a, a little bit of a difficult time trying to unpack them, it's usually because there might be sort of a cultural blind spot for us in terms of uh, interpretation. And I think one of the aspects with this text is we tend to actually do think it's these things external to us that are the things that make us defiled before God. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think there's a number of examples which we could pull out. Probably the biggest one in our culture would be something like pornography. That's something that is outside of me. It's on a computer screen or it's even produced in another location. Um, But so many of the men in our culture struggle with pornography, whether like actual um, industry-produced pornography or something that might be compared to pornography, say, in terms of like uh, Hollywood-produced films. Um, so what do we do with something like that, which appears outside coming in? Sure. So just to back up a little bit, mm-hmm. um, if I had to say one thing that, that I wanted the congregation to walk away with this week, the main point in the text, I believe, mm-hmm. is, um, first of all, Jesus wants us to, to answer two questions. Uh, what makes someone defiled and mm-hmm. what makes someone clean? And the main point that I wanted people to see is what makes us defiled is not something that that comes outside of someone in, um, but what makes someone defiled is our hearts, our Mm -hmm. own hearts. That's what produces um, sin. And then what makes us clean is not something external, uh, like the washing of hands or Mm -hmm. the keeping of these made-up laws. 
But what makes us clean is repentance and faith in in Christ. And so, um, you know, your follow-up question is, okay, Drew, well, if if what makes us defiled is something inside, not outside, um, what about pornography mm-hmm. that, that clearly comes in from outside? It's something mm-hmm. that's viewed um, and, and clearly de- defiles us. What? Mm-hmm. How does that square with what you said? Um, I think of you know one one text that might go with that. Matthew chapter six verse twenty two. It says, "The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Um, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness?" So. Um, Kind of my, my response to that is, yes, but all sin originates in the mm-hmm. heart. Uh, there, there's not a category of person who um, is completely pure-hearted mm-hmm. and then goes and searches out pornography of, mm-hmm. of any kind. Um, sin originates in the heart and then leads to the effect of, of going and viewing pornography, which further mm-hmm. um, defiles your heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so... It's really a question of, of cause and effect. Um, the cause is the sin in your heart. The effect is the actions that you take, um, which further you know, mm-hmm. sends you down this spiral of your heart being defiled. So, um, yes, you know, looking at, at something like pornography does defile you, mm-hmm. um, but that, that started in your heart first. Right. right. It makes me think of in, in Song of Solomon, there's this passage in which... Uh, so Song of Solomon uh, is exchanges of poetry letters, essentially, between um, a bet- the two betrothed, the future husband and the future wife. Uh, and the wife writing one of them uh, tells her friends... I don't want the the passion, the eros, the the like sexual passion in you stirred up before it's time or, mm-hmm. or outside of the place in which God designed it for. So she's not saying like, hey, don't put passion inside of you. She's saying, you know, this erotic passion that you might have for the person you love has a particular place and a particular direction which God designed it for. And if you inside of yourself stir that thing up before it's time, you're going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. It also makes me think in terms of what you said uh, about like why parenting is so important. You know, our kids come into this world with defiled hearts. So it's like, I didn't teach my younger son to bite his older brother. That's just something that came out. Uh, and so we have to work to parent away from those things, away mm-hmm. from the sorts of things that are the the revealing of the defiled heart. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. the other thing just to, to run... Um, this issue of pornography through our, our, I guess, grid of Mm -hmm. what makes someone defiled and what makes someone clean, we're saying, yes, it it defiles, but it started in the heart. And the Mm -hmm. second question, what makes someone clean? Mm -hmm. Well, not you you don't clean yourself of of having viewed pornography by by washing your hands or doing good deeds Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, doing penance or or anything like that. You you become clean, Mm -hmm. again, through repentance and through faith in right, Christ. Right. That's how mm-hmm. someone can be be cleansed spiritually um, of the sin that they've committed. Right. And even taking that a step further, you could say the person who is uh, sexually pure in terms of the way the Bible speaks of it is not the person who is simply not viewed pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's the person who is pursuing sanctification. I think First Thessalonians 4, 3, what is God's will for your life? Sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, it's this concept of like, 
one of the ways in which God sanctifies us is the abstinence, but the abstinence itself is not sanctification. Mm-hmm. It's just one of the pathways. Yeah, um, you you mentioned a quote, and I'd love if you'd give us that quote, but um, the idea that in many ways the Pharisees did get it right, mm-hmm. that righteousness is external. What was that quote? Yeah, I think I'm stealing it from Mike Horton, but I haven't... Uh, I haven't fact-checked this yet, but it's the concept that actually we are saved by law-keeping. It's just not our Mm -hmm. law-keeping. Our Savior came, Jesus came, and he kept the law perfectly where we couldn't. And so we're saved through his ability to keep the law, not our own. Yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. It's true. So all of this kind of prompts another question, which if it's not the things coming outside, we've got chapters and chapters and chapters in the Old Testament where you have all of these uh, commands and laws given to the Old Testament people of God, um, where God is saying, hey, don't be defiled by this external thing. Like, I mean, the stereotypes are the, uh, the dietary laws, something like that, where you have, you know, don't eat pork, don't eat shellfish, uh, don't do these things because those defile you. So what do we, how do we understand those now as Christians uh, if Jesus is saying we aren't defiled by external things? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just the concept of the law mm-hmm. um, is it, it's a complex thing. Um, the, the term the law gets used to describe a number of different things in the Old Testament. So Sometimes the law uh, is used synonymously with the Ten Commandments. Okay. Um, other times the law is used to describe the first five books of, of the Old Testament. You know, mm-hmm. the law and the prophets and the writings. <laughs> right, right. Um, but e- even within the law of Moses, uh, if we're using the term law of Moses, um, there, there's kind of different distinctions within that law. Um, there is the moral law, which... Uh, would would actually predate the, the giving of the law of Moses and in, in many senses post-date. It still continues today. We mm. see that law, uh, which which describes the character of God, mm-hmm. um, still binding on us today. And so you say that predates because, you know, we think it would have been a sin had Adam killed Eve in the garden. Bingo. Like murder was not, did not become a sin when Moses brought the Ten Commandments. Bingo. That was already an issue. Right. So we've got the moral law, which seems embedded in creation because of God's character. Yes. And then there's two others. The moral law, Uh um, there's ceremonial law, which is um, things that that God gave to them that was, you know, didactic, or it Mm -hmm. taught them things about who God was, and it pointed forward towards Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, Things that they did ceremonially that that helped them understand God a little bit more um, and then was fulfilled in Christ. Mm. Um, And so those types of things are are no longer um, necessarily applicable to us as Christians today in Mm -hmm. in the church because they were meant to point forward to Christ and to prepare people for the coming of Christ. So there's moral law, there's ceremonial law. um, And I I referenced some of those ceremonial laws in the sermon that a priest had to mm-hmm. wash their hands significantly before they went into the temple. And that was to show them and the people of God that you have to be clean before you can approach a holy God. And mm-hmm. so it, it taught them that God was holy and it taught them that they were not, even mm-hmm. as priests, um, that they needed this. And so all of that gets fulfilled in Christ, um, that we, we see that Christ is the fulfillment of um making us holy through his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, So ceremonial law, 
Um, so there's moral law, ceremonial law, and then civil law. There were lots of laws that simply uh, applied to Israel um, as a nation uh, that that no longer apply to us as a people. And so uh, that's there's three different w- parts of, of the law. Um, and so, you know, that first one, the moral law, still continues. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other two do not, um, even though they were good things whenever they were given to the people of Israel. So do they not continue because, like, fundamentally their their job is to prepare us for the coming of Jesus? Yeah, I, I think part of that is true. And part of it, like, there were just some practical things within the law. Mm. Um, so we talked about specifically eating um, or not eating certain foods. Mm. Um, there, there were some practical things when it came to why God gave Israel the, these laws. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to eat certain foods literally would have made them sick. Um, and so God was looking out for them at the time. Um, there, there's certainly a lot more complex answer to that as well that we won't go into here today. But um, there's a, an article on the Gospel Coalition mm-hmm. that we will will link to in the show notes that kind of goes into detail of of why certain things were were not um, to be eaten and why certain things were, depending on how they were classified in Genesis 1 and 2, mm-hmm. um, and, and even in the Noahic covenant as clean and unclean. Okay. Yeah, I, I've always found some of these things really fascinating. I mean, I think you you run into them whenever you're trying to do that, like, daunting read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year program, and you hit, you know... Leviticus and Numbers, and you start to run into things that are, you know, what to do with mold in certain parts of the house mm-hmm. and, you know, bodily discharges and all that kind of stuff. I actually have a favorite one uh, because without Jesus, it just seems to me to be the the strangest thing I have read in the Bible. It comes from Numbers chapter 5, and it's, uh, in most Bibles, it has the title, uh, Test for Adultery. And so what you have is... Uh, Husbands are told, if you think your wife has committed adultery, bring her to the priest and explain this to the priest. And what the priest does then is, um, long story short, and I won't get into all the, the details because it's it's rather detailed, but the priest is to mix this sort of like odd smoothie contraption uh, <laughs> that includes things like dust from the floor of the tabernacle and uh, particular herbs and spices and things like that. And then what ends up happening is it said, yeah, then she drinks it and uh, there are actually ramifications for her drinking it. Um, she drinks it and then either there's kind of this uh, seemingly spiritual or miraculous thing that happens in her where it helps her become fruitful in the sense of like bearing children or it makes her barren uh which just like i don't understand what's taking place there and it's very confusing uh one thing i think is interesting about that is um in order to test it you would then the husband and wife would actually need to be intimate together so you have this kind of concept of uh sex is a covenant renewal ceremony and Mm -hmm. part of the test of adultery is the renewing of the covenant to see if she becomes pregnant or if she's barren but in that in the section where this is laid out in numbers five there's reference to the cup or the vessel on a number of occasions and it's just this very odd thing that in reading the old testament with some friends i always get questions about this and the only way I think you can actually make sense of what's taking place here 
is when you read through and you see all these references to God's wrath as being this cup and God as being this husband whose uh, who's chosen bride has committed adultery with him. And it all culminates with Jesus sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane saying what? Father, if it be your will, may this cup, the cup of your wrath, the cup of adultery, pass from me. And so you have Jesus, the true bridegroom, the true, uh, the true husband of God's people, saying that even though his people are unfaithful, rather than making his bride drink the cup as a test for their unfaithfulness, he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath. Mm-hmm. And he's going to endure that test on behalf of his bride. And until you get that, I don't have a, I don't know what people do with Numbers 5 now. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a wild text. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. Um, but then when you get Jesus, you just have this beautiful culmination of this was, it had a practical purpose in the Old Testament, but it has this theological purpose of preparing us for the one who was to come. That's good. There's a... Mm-hmm. Um, um, series of children's books that we love. It, it, they're some of our favorite books to read with our kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're by R.C. Sproul, but they're, they're children's books. And mm-hmm. so one of them is called The Prince's Poison Cup. Mm. Uh, and it, it deals with exactly what you just described with uh, Jesus drinking uh, mm-hmm. the full wrath of God and mm-hmm. um, doing that on our behalf so that, that we don't have to. And so that's such a, a beautiful, perfect picture of, of the gospel for yeah. us. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's really important that we understand this and that we grapple with it well, because this is something that we consistently struggle with. It just seems to me looking at every culture and looking at how all different people interact with the gospel, we're all to a certain extent, um, setting up boundary markers in terms of purity and defilement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all set up uh, boundary markers in terms of law keeping and uh, not law keeping. Um, and so when we when we do those things, we're we're adding these other things to to God's law and to what it means to be saved. In fact, it, it might be helpful um, just before we wrap up to kind of explain some of your ideas about legalism. You mentioned uh, that there's a couple of different ways uh, to understand the term legalism. Yeah, so I, I think this is a really important discussion, and this is mm-hmm. one of those things that uh, ended up on the cutting room floor, mm-hmm. again, that didn't make it into the sermon because it wasn't necessarily the main mm-hmm. point. But um, I, I think the word legalism gets thrown around a lot and gets mm-hmm. thrown around loosely today that you know, some people just say, you know, man, if you're trying to obey God's commands, you're a legalist. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that couldn't be further from the truth. Right. Um, we're actually told that, that if we love God, we'll obey his commands. Yeah, John 15. John 15. And so um, it's important for us to answer the question and, and actually define what mm-hmm. is legalism. Mm-hmm. And from what I can see, there, there's kind of two different versions of legalism that we see uh, that Jesus addresses. Uh, one form of legalism is taking the word of God and actually adding to it things that God never said. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we see that even in the garden, mm-hmm. that uh, Satan, the serpent, comes up to Eve um, and, you know, tells her, um, hey, I did God really say this? You know, and then she adds to it. She says, you know, we shall not eat of any mm-hmm. tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. So mm. she adds this external thing that, that God never said to right. it. 
So that's one form of legalism is actually adding something to God's law that he never said. And that's one of the things taking place in the text. In our text, right. Mm -hmm. So they have this whole thing called the Mishnah, uh, which was kind of their outside of the word of God, outside of the law of God. They had created pages and pages and pages and pages of these, you know, what we would call fences Mm -hmm. that they added to God's law. So these were not things that God had commanded at all, Mm -hmm. but they were keeping like the the ritual hand washing before mm-hmm. uh, lunchtime, or like the taking a bath after you had been out uh, in in the marketplace with mm-hmm. gentiles. Um, lots of their Sabbath things that they did were not actually obeying, um, you know, the the command mm-hmm. um, to remember the Sabbath. But they were these external things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one example of legalism is adding to the actual law of God. Um, mm-hmm. The second version of legalism would be believing that through keeping the actual law of God, uh, that you can earn favor with God. Um, so if, if I just obey enough that God will like me and God will find me acceptable before mm. him. And so uh, that's, a, that's the form of legalism that I think people most often mean, is that you're just trying to earn God's favor through mm. keeping the commands of God. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in, in one sense, uh, that, that's completely against the gospel. Mm-hmm. to say that we can earn God's favor through keeping the law. Um, one, we, we can't keep the law. It's impossible for us. Right. Um, and, and two, that's we can only earn God's favor through Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but in another sense, you, you referenced earlier that we actually are saved by law-keeping, just mm-hmm. not our own. Right. And I think that is so important. Uh, we talked about that a little bit in the sermon, that in one sense, the, the Pharisees were right, that... Um, how we're made clean is external. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an alien righteousness right, right, that's right. not our own. It's the righteousness of Christ that gets placed on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, legalism, um, there, there's two sides of it. One side um, that's not the gospel is legalism in both of those forms. But last night in missional community, we actually talked about the other side of it, mm-hmm. that there's antinomianism or, mm-hmm. or being against anti-law as well, mm-hmm. and that's not what we're called to either. Uh, we're mm-hmm. called to cling to the gospel with all we have and then obey as a response to that mm-hmm. gospel mm-hmm. and to, as John 15 said, that, that's how we, we know that we love God, through yeah. obeying or keeping his commandments. So law-keeping in and of itself is not legalism. It's just the motive behind it. What do you understand that you're doing when you're keeping the law? Yeah, I th- I think it's so important to understand those things because we do we play this weird game psychologically, especially with the the latter form of legalism that you were talking about, where uh, they because they play off of each other, right? So if you're being legalistic in the second way, there's something I think that takes place psychologically where you know you can't keep the law. So what you do is you actually end up being legalistic in the first way you were talking about where you create these other laws around it because mm-hmm. you can keep those laws. Those laws become easier to keep for you. And then you can you can justify yourself. And one of the things Jesus is getting at in the passage you had on Sunday is they had done that. And what it actually led to is their laws contradicted mm-hmm. the moral law of God, which they were still supposed to be keeping. But... All of this is so fascinating. We could talk about this for a long period of time, but it's also immensely complex. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything which you could point them to? You named the Gospel Coalition article, but you could point our congregation to to help them kind of better understand this stuff? Yeah, so um, there's a book called Devoted to God by Sinclair Ferguson, 
and uh, he is fantastic. I highly recommend anything he writes. Uh, but this book, Devoted to God, is actually one of my favorites that, that he's written, and specifically chapter 8. Um, hmm. It's a, a chapter called The Law Goes Deep. And so he just explains both sides really well of, of what we've been talking about, that the law is vitally important to mm-hmm. our Christian faith. Um, and he fully explains the three divisions of the law there. Um, so I would highly recommend Devoted to God by Sinclair Ferguson. All right. So you can pick up that book. Uh, if you don't want to buy the whole book and you just want to read chapter eight, you can come steal Drew's copy off of his shelf. Um, one of the things which is really important uh, and has helped me understand the law a bit better is the concept of biblical theology. So mm-hmm. biblical theology is a particular way to think through and to read the scriptures. And it's, it's I mean, the really quick way to explain it is simply the person doing biblical theology assumes the scripture has one primary author, and that mm-hmm. author is God, and he's a good author. And therefore, he's going to have things, themes, people, places, uh, foreshadowing all those literary devices that are going to track throughout all of Scripture, and you can trace them and understand the Scripture more in depth on certain things by looking at those. Um, In a couple of different books, there's a bunch that are really good, but just for an introduction to biblical theology, two books that stand out to me are um, Vaughn Roberts, who is a uh, uh, British evangelical, wrote a book, God's Big Picture, uh, which is fantastic, really easy read. Um, And as well, another pretty short, really accessible book is Biblical Theology uh, in the Nine Mark series. It's They've got these colored books. We give away a few with our membership class, but they're purple one in that series by, I want to say, Rourke and Klein. is, is on biblical theology, and it does an excellent job explaining it and then showing how it works out with the theme of the kingdom of God. Yeah, I, I can't recommend just the study of biblical theology more. Uh, for, for me personally, it, it truly, and I mean this just very genuinely, it changed the way I read, read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, it changes the way I preach. It uh, changes the way I, I study. It changes my devotions uh, because it just gives you a new lens through which you're viewing every text of Scripture. Um, yeah. And so I can't recommend that high, highly enough. Well, I think that's an excellent point to end on, uh, just encouraging you guys to, to check out some resources and think deeply about uh, the entirety of Scripture and how it links together, um, Old Testament all the way to New Testament. Uh, so with that, we'll wrap up. Uh, this has been the Santa Cruz Baptist Podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us, and hopefully we'll see you on Sunday. Yeah, and quick plug, uh, we mentioned last week we love to take questions you have. Uh, two of the topics we discussed today actually came in through the mailbag, and so if you have questions about a text or about the sermon, um, send in to us in an email, office at santacruzbaptist.com. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We hope this has been helpful. We'll see you again next week.